This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined by Mawera Karatai in Fakatani. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How goes it? It's going very well for a Tuesday. Yay for Tuesdays. It's going well here too. Today we are joined from Melbourne by Carmel McNaught and David Kennedy. Welcome. Thank you kindly. Lovely to be here. How are things going in your bubble? Well, we are still in the first week of stage four lockdown, which um, basically means that there is a curfew. So from 8pm to 5am, you are absolutely locked down. Uh, Only one person can leave the house once a day to get food. You can leave the house to exercise once a day. um, uh, For one hour. For one hour only. (laughs) Uh, Most shops are closed. Absolutely. The businesses have been totally closed down. Um, It's just very quiet. Um, Now, you know, we're in a a really, really lucky position. We're now almost tired. So, and the work we do, we can do very happily online. And so it doesn't make much difference to us. We, We have a house that has a gym in it. So we can actually exercise and stuff like that. Um, so it's, we just feel enormously grateful, but we are well aware many people are having a really, really tough time. And, um, yeah, it doesn't seem to be anything else to do but just to do it. And have lots of home projects to keep oneself busy. I have lists. You have lists. <laughs> I am a list. I have lists for every activity in life. And so... Uh, I don't know what the meaning of the board is. I haven't quite worked that one out yet. I've heard of the word. Um, but He thinks it's uh, related to digging fence posts, you know, for farmers. Yes. Know, boring yeah. a hole in the ground. Yeah. Uh, Are those lists yeah. getting so, done? One of the things we heard early on yes. was that people were thinking that they, they really had to do all these things. And one of the things that people realised is maybe it didn't matter if they didn't get that stuff done. Uh, I think there's a difference between wanting to get stuff done and going out in a rush or actually looking at the the evidence that's available and saying, we're in this for the long haul, so let's just create a a pattern of life that's sustainable and keep ourselves busy and keep moving and and, um, get things accomplished and and savour the little stuff, which is usually you ignore, but actually it's quite fun. No, no, I I certainly have got lots of lists done that have been sitting there for... (laughs) A long time because basically we stopped being sort of jet-setting academic consultants 
like overnight. Um, so uh, we had a travel schedule for this year that was going to be amazing. Uh, we had work in Papua New Guinea, work in the UK. Um, we have kids living in this league. We were going to drop in on them. Uh, um, we have and, work. And we know. were going to Antarctica at the end of the year, and all of that just cracked and burned. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so. you restruct what you're saying. I must say, I, I, again, one of the other things I think is, is for us so nice is that we, we're at the stage of life where we were thinking about slowing down and becoming sensible grandparents and all that sort of stuff. Um, and now well, we sort of, we haven't got any kids in them, but we now actually are connected to them probably more strongly. You know, they keep checking up on the oldies to make sure that <laughs> you know, we're still okay, checking our mental health and so on, uh, which is quite sweet of them, really. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we feel that maybe the term physical distancing should have been used before social distancing because our social networks are very much alive and active and span half the globe and multiple time zones, which makes it very tricky sometimes. Yeah, but you know, we have four children and the four children are in Italy, Singapore and then two sets in Perth. Um, there are eight grandchildren. So, you know, we say hi to all of them very regularly and... I think, as I say, we seem to be um, more aware of all doing than we were beforehand. So for us, it's very good. And also, we have a number of friends who, for whatever reason, are now single. You know, either a partner has died or they don't happen to have one or whatever. And, and we, it's really quite important to keep in touch with them. And we have always someone to talk to. And having someone to talk to you know, and actually we get on pretty well, you know. We do, oh, we do. Which is a nice thing. <laughs> a good division of labour. <laughs> He's a great cook. <laughs> Just gourmet. I haven't actually put on weight during lockdown. I've been very good about that, but I haven't lost it either. Um, um, gourmet meat, fantastic. Um, well, certainly, certainly lockdowns enabled me to experiment a bit more in the kitchen, you see. One can be terribly seduced by convenience shall we say sometimes and um so unfortunately i decided to go into the pizza making business at home and that's been a, a terrible mistake because um we're not allowed to buy them anymore uh, here's a so much better so after lockdown we'll be happy folks um you're very welcome we shall come over and do that
So the jet setting educational consultancy has has stopped. Is the remote consultancy carrying on? Um, certainly with South Africa. Uh, we both have visiting professor posts at the University of Johannesburg. And um, I took on editing a book on social justice in teacher education in the past. That last week, I am so pleased I submitted the final manuscript because sort of assisting people to get these chapters, it works fabulous. There's so much great work happening uh, in Africa, but getting people to actually write about it is another matter. Mm. And it's been a bit of a challenge. But um, And then, of course, once COVID started, a tad more difficult. Um, so that's occupied a great deal. Um, we are deeply upset, concerned about some. Um, the fact that the statistics there are pretty grim indicates that the rest of Africa will be the same. The reason that the rest of Africa has lower stats is because they just not don't have the capacity to do all the testing. And we know from chatting to friends there that hospitals are already and um, things are going down. So sort of having that immediate sense of working with people people who you know who have deaths in the family and you know have real problems with the communities that they're working in um i suppose gives us personally um even more reason to feel grateful for mm. our particular bubble i mean we might melbourne might be in a bit of a grim position right now but then relative to the globe it's it's yeah. uh, I, I think it gives us a sense of perspective because you know in a stage four lockdown such as we are in, in melbourne there are some people who are objecting quite vociferously, shall we say, uh, to the point of even trying to organise um, rallies, <laughs> which is against the spirit of, of, of the lockdown and the purpose of the lockdown. But really, when you, when you have that South African connection, as we do, you realise that we have, we have first world problems and um, we should be absolutely grateful for all of the, the sophistication and the backup systems that we have in a, in a place like Australia or New Zealand. Um, which simply don't exist in other cultures, other countries, because they don't have the resource, resources to do it. So I think that that sense of perspective means one remains very positive and very grateful for what, for what is basically a fairly straightforward experience for us. And, in, you know, the, we have great internet, for example, so we can chat to people all around the world and chat to our family, and none of those things are interrupted, really. I guess I, I am... A bit concerned, well, disappointed. I mean, we've both spent, I don't know, 50 years, yes, we're old, um, working in it. Uh, it. It's been my life for the last 50 years, professions. And I, I, I'm, just, I'm just distressed by how people cannot understand uh, either the basic science of this virus or... The, the rationale behind various strategies. I mean, it is a new situation, so of course there are mistakes and, and evidence is, is confused and, and so on. But the huge number of people, not only in Australia, but, well, um, another country that comes to mind, um, who are just simply refusing to look at the situation and deal with it. And we as educators need to take some responsibility for, to be honest, our failure in enabling uh, the development of capabilities of critical thinking and problem solving. And, and that's a sort of like, you know, the end of my career now. And while I can think about individuals who, yeah, I guess I, I managed to assist a bit, systemically, 
we have the same problems we had 50 years ago. In fact, they're worse. Uh, and that's a matter of, well, I've got time for reflection. I don't know what I could do about it. But um, that's that a sort of current, undercurrent that's uh, filtering through. Sit and look at the sunsets or what. Do you think we're getting better at including things like critical thinking? And perhaps more importantly, do you think we're getting better at that sort of teaching social justice? I think I think the latter you've hit upon it in a very particular manner is that social justice is a, is both slippery and embedded in a lot of cultural mores. Uh, and one of the great challenges I think is to make people aware that social justice should be on the agenda. And much of the work that Carmel's been doing recently is about has been around those issues. And quite often they're invisible. If you grow up in a particular culture, you it's very difficult to step into the shoes of somebody else's culture and have a good look at it from their perspective. But in reality, that's what needs to be done. And when you have curriculum that is centralized and focused from above, there may not be the kind of flexibility you need sometimes to well, to undertake the broader aspects of and one of the challenging chapters in the book I've been talking about was the one on language, because um, language speaks to so much. And in South Africa, English and African are still the dominant languages, despite the fact that the Constitution says that all African languages um, have equal status. Now, it's a very complex and difficult um, situation. And... Uh, working with my authors, they move from a sort of almost dogmatic and uncritical perspective that this is wrong, we must change, to let's look at where the opportunities are to change within the current system so that you get an evolution um, towards a more actuation. And and that's where I think critical thinking comes into sources. It's the... It's when people get on bandwagons and say, you know, something, the rhetoric table, uh, that this is what we have to change now. It it doesn't happen that way. Um, And so uh, enabling people to be able to get to a situation of conversation and uh, looking at how to actually move from an undesirable position to one which is more desirable in a way that's not too confrontational, Um, yeah, it's tricky. But I think we've had wins. I mean, one of there are 14, I think, chapters in this book, and each one of them has a a sort of a project that has been successful in some extent to change a particular context, either in a school or a training program or what, yeah, so on. And, and, And all of these little glimmers of hope, if you like, uh, are important. But systemically, we haven't quite done it. I think one of the challenges we face, particularly now, with people living in their bubbles um, and deriving their news from their bubbles and their friends' news from their bubbles, and etc., is to be able to have um, have conversations, as Carl says, that can explore the issues without people becoming irritated or reflexive and, and, and angry. And so that loss of civility in some of the conversations is apparent in our media and we would just like that to be more positive in terms of yes we we have some challenges facing us but wow we have some fabulous opportunities in terms of how we might want to depart from this particular pandemic how we would restructure pieces of our society how we would look at issues around 
the environment, issues around energy, particularly in Australia uh, and New Zealand. And those are opportunities which I think we should take. And Carmel and I are both doing our own little bits and pieces here and there to contribute to some of those things. Once people move past um, the emergency response, the, the, the frantically putting everything online, do you think that there are glimmers of hope in what we might learn from the pandemic for a better sort of education? Well, given that I let's even forget about the term online, what we're really interested in is learning design, is talking about how you design for learning and what tools you use. Now, one of the chapters in the book is about the pandemic and the move to online and particularly online assessment for students who are in very challenging positions. There's uh, a pretty good co-author on that um, <laughs> and who uh, worked with one of the uh, staff at UJ. Um, and, and I think that, that's important that you, you can, because when you look at having to go online, then being in that, amazingly clear about what you're trying with and how you might go about it. In a sense, the online uh, context um, means that you have to clarify your thinking about your job as a teacher and then communicate it effectively. You see, when, when you're doing face-to-face teaching, you can, if you've got reasonable articulate skills, you can meander into a classroom and fluff and bubble your way through an hour or two. Uh, you can't do that online. You need to you need to have your act together. So my guess is that this pandemic um, will will do two things. The positive is that it will have uh, enabled, supported, forced, I'm not sure which teachers to begin some of that deeper um, clarifying type of thinking. Um, and it has also brought out some negatives about teachers who really are not doing a particularly good job of even face-to-face teaching. Um, so I think that, to me, it shows because it's, it's producing evidence, you're now tangible. Your, your classroom, if you like, can be viewed. And uh, I've always thought the secrecy around teaching was a great mistake, you know, that you, you didn't naturally work with colleagues and meander in and out of each other's classrooms. That was sort of not something one did. And I think now we have some opportunities to have more robust discussions about learning. So maybe. I'm I'm hoping one of the positives that will come out of this is that a lot of our teachers will have gained skills they didn't know they could get um, simply because of of the situation. And for me, that's actually very important because, as Carmel says, some of these online tools, they're actually quite useful, strangely enough. And one of the things you do have if you want to incorporate into your teaching and learning in face-to-face environments or hybrid environments, blended environments, use whatever language you care to pick on that one, um, is that you can make use of the best tools for the best job and it, it enforces you in becoming more organised. So as Carmel says, you, you can't sort of waft in and, and wing it for half an hour hoping to think of something to do in the next 25 minutes mm-hmm. while you do so. Once you go into a more formalised setting and where you've got a better planning, a better plan in terms of what the students do and what you do, then there's some opportunities there to change what we do fundamentally. And, and it's not new. I mean, you know, we've both been working in technology environments for 30 years, so since the early 1990s. And um, and in fact, if I, if I can comment, one project that I worked in at the University of Melbourne back 
then is still, the, the design is still being used now because thinking cleverly about images and structuring tutorials and all that sort of stuff, it's not rocket science. Um, it's, it, it, uh, I'm, David's way more technical than I am, um, but both of us feel that we're pretty good learning designers. And, uh, and that's where teamwork comes in. Uh, and I think uh, one of the problems in schools in particular is often the lack of technical support. So teachers who might want to become more upskilled other than you know, notes and PowerPoints online um, don't really have the uh, capacity to get somebody in to do a bit of graphic whatever might be needed. I think one of the pressures on teachers at the moment is a lot of the things that teachers might have done in the past is that um, they would cobble it up themselves because they were interested or they wanted to teach a particular concept in a particular way. But the, the kids these days are very demanding in terms of their expectations about design because there's so much good design that's flooding onto the environment. Um, through social media in particular. Um, and so that, that puts some, some, some challenges for teachers. But I don't think there's anything that cannot be addressed. And I think, that, as I said, this pandemic is an opportunity for people to grow new skills and new ideas and new approaches. Yeah, but also, given that the kids are often technically savvy, particularly with um, visual media, then there's so many opportunities to get them to do the work for you. Yeah. I, I don't see why teachers should be creating all the animation, the bits and pieces and so on. That's what the kids can do. I'd love to share a story about a school I know of in, on the other side of Australia. I won't mention it, but the, they decided that the kids knew more than the teachers did. And so you know how you have the sort of badges and everything where the, the class prefect or the, you know, the particular sporting achievement, they had their technology specialist and they called them of all things technology angels. And each teacher had a technology angel assigned to them. And this is a very long running program. And it broke down a lot of barriers uh, right across the, the college because the if the student technology angel couldn't solve a particular problem, they could go back to their team, their group, and solve that problem. And it, it made the interaction between the teaching and the learning much more transparent and more of a joint ownership. And there's quite a bit of work that's been done in that area and that's been a very successful program that's run for more than 15 years. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui, kia koutou, ko Hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars and beloved universes. I really hope that wherever you are, whatever is happening around you this journey that we're all on together has proven to be very rewarding very fulfilling very nourishing and it's illuminating for you every day more and more who you are a triumph of nature's art perfect unique here making things better thank you so as you know i've emerged from my fever chrysalis and my time at Stunedin Public Hospital which was very exciting and I'm now taking part in an in-depth recuperation plan supported by the wider community of Stunedin and today I've been really enjoying that sense of companionship and support from my beautiful partner Harvey Penfold who has stopped working at 
quality doors, making doors over and over again all day, every day, in order to support me in my recuperation, which is very, very kind. And he's going to be doing part-time work with his arborism and building and computer building. And of course, our Pika Pika bird feeder business. So that's very good. And we've had a wonderful day together doing all these orders for Maritain and frolicking about and taking the cats to the vet and all this sort of thing. So it's been a really lovely day. And it's just made a huge, huge difference to me having him there and having his support. And of course, this got me thinking about companionship and the benefits of companionship in broader terms. So as you all know, Harvey Penfold has many fine qualities, wildly expressive, non-verbally. It's not wildly verbally expressive, which I find very peaceful. Also exudes very soothing, loving energy, which I really enjoy. And all of this serves to recharge me on a daily basis, bearing in mind that the rest of my life is very intensively interaction-based, which I love as well. So, of course, when we speak about companionship, there are many different forms of companionship. And when I spoke with Harvey Penfold about what he enjoys from companionship and our experience helping each other today, he talked about how we were able to really bounce off each other and motivate each other and how it was much easier to stay motivated when we were together and we were able to energise one another, which was absolutely right. And something I really enjoyed from some time with him was that he takes it much more slowly than I do and he paces himself much more than I do. So he'll, he'll do some work and then he'll have a wee break and he'll do some more and that sort of thing. Whereas I am more of the ploughing constantly onwards approach. So very interesting. So companionship in this way can help us learn new ways of doing things. And of course, there are many different forms of companion. We took our dear companions, Poirot and Hastings, to the vet today, our lovely feline companions. I've been really enjoying the companionship of the Hey Hey now that they're free in the garden. They come running towards me in the morning in a line, Mahuika, Goddess of Fire, leading the way. It's very beautiful. And of course, the companionship of all living things around us. I've been loving hearing all the birds singing in the morning. And of course, now that it's spring, all the new flowers and plants appearing providing us with another sense of companionship and of course there's so many companions in the unseen that we're not necessarily consciously aware of but who are surrounding us and supporting us and of course all the companions of the lives that have gone before our life making our life possible all the lives that are waiting to be born that sense of connection throughout the infinite web of life of which we are a part and possibly my favorite companion of course, is our, our self and our understanding of ourself and our consciousness. And of course, this is our constant companion and one that with each day we get to know better and better, which is the greatest gift. Our presence is present itself and itself is enough. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever companions you're finding around you, you're having that real sense of love and support that's around you at all times. And I look forward to talking to you more tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakiti. When I look at um, the way that adults are communicating ideas on social media at the moment, there's a lot of distrust that's um, directed at anything that's science-based, which I find really alarming. Are teachers finding that in the classroom with kids as well? Oh, I don't know. We're not really classroom teachers anymore, so I'm not sure how we can answer that from a teacher's perspective. But 
I think what you're alluding to is a general malaise. And I think one of the problems is, and in the interest of, of clarity, uh, we are both originally science trained. So we both have undergraduate science degrees. And one of the things that is, has clearly been, we failed to communicate fully uh, is that science is something that develops over time that new knowledge can displace old knowledge. And one of the difficulties we've got, particularly with this coronavirus, is people's lack of understanding that what we knew in December 2019 is entirely different to what we knew in March, and it's different again to what we know now in July. And one of the failings, I think, of the message from, from many, from science in the past, is that of this this nature of change is the fact is part of science and that communication. So you, you often get media coming back to situations, but you said in February, well, but that what was said in February was based upon what was known in February and people have, you know, they lead busy lives and they can't necessarily follow that journey. I think one of the challenges that faces everybody listening to, to the way in which the science is developing in this particular pandemic is the fact that it will keep changing because it's quite clear that initially the COVID-19 was thought to be the same pretty much as the SARS virus for 2003. It turns out that it only shares 78% of its DNA. And a lot of people will say, 78%, wow, that's just like the same, isn't it? And my answer to that is, well, um, the percentage difference between a human being and a chimpanzee is 1%. So I'd say a 22% difference in a viral structure is a pretty major difference. And therefore, there's a lot of work to be done before we can start to really understand this bug. I, I think one of the problems uh, we, information, we've both been directors of teaching and learning at universities. So we've dealt with all, worked with all the faculties and all the departments. And there was this general um, uh, uh, sort of distrust of the other lot. Now, this is among academics. So humanities academics don't trust scientists and scientific academics, humanities folks. Now, I used to be, if I was in the science faculty, I had, you know, they knew I had a chemistry degree. Right? When I was over in the um, uh, humanities area, uh, I, the comment would be made that, uh, yes, I do have a PhD in sociolinguistics. So it's sort of like I played my game to be in both camps. But I was very aware that the need for interdisciplinary uh, dialogue at all levels. So it's not just, you know, so in our curriculum, the fact that we still have subjects. I mean, one of the nice things about the Steiner schools is that idea um, that they have a two-hour block classroom at the beginning of each day, which is interdisciplinary studies. Now, I think that was a great deal to begin to look at the interface between disciplines and some of that idea of the fluidity and movement knowledge, which you, you do see, I think, sometimes more in the humanities, uh, could filter into the sciences and some of the logic, rationality, evidence the sciences could come over into humanities. I, I think we're missing an opportunity there through not encouraging interdisciplinary work at all levels of the educational yeah. structure. I think also I've done some a little work in medical education and I think some of the approaches to problem-based learning or clinically based learning in medicine 
could give good guidelines for for school life. And they solve a lot of problems. And I was obliquely part of one particular process. And the biggest problem was, as, as a tutorial, you would give a, a difficult problem to a group of students to solve, a clinical problem that they would have to go out and investigate. So in a sense, it was the opposite. Instead of building step by step by step from the, the easy bits to the moderate bits to the hard bits, they were given a significant problem, a real problem, and then they had to go and find the pieces to connect the dots. And if they had to learn some anatomy or if they had to do some radiography or if they had to do something else to solve that particular problem, come up with some answers, some predictions, some clinical action, by doing the biggest problem we had was training the staff, the teachers, not to tell them the answer because the, the students would, would try and weave their way through, as students will do, and, and wheedle the answer uh, out of the uh, tutor. And that was a very challenging process to say, look, you have to learn how to give advice without giving an answer. And I think it's very easy as a teacher, and I, was once, I once taught chemistry in schools and things like that, so I do have a bit of school experience. And it's very difficult for a teacher to say, no, 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 I, I'm not going to tell you the answer to that. There is a process by which you can go, go through to find it out. Um, but then you're coming up against some cultural norms and parental expectations, things like that. So cultural change there would be a very useful in people beginning to understand how the scientific process works over time and how they need to approach problems. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? Yes, and how many seas must a white dove see before she sleeps in the sand? Yes, and how many times must the cannonballs fly before they fall out of a van? The answer, my friend, is a blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Must a mountain exist before it is washed to the sea? Yes, and how many years and some people exist before they're allowed to be free? Yes, and how many times must a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? My friend is a blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing. Is a blowing in 
how are they communicating the the, the the changes in levels that you're going through in Melbourne? There must be a lot of resistance because you were locked down and then you weren't and now you are um, again. How are they doing that uh, in a positive way? I, I think they are actually... Well, first of all, the Premier's holding daily conferences, yeah. news conferences, and equally he's not dominating them. A lot of the health professionals, the, the, you know, the actual epidemiologists and the experts are present at these things, so the dissemination information. What I find interesting is that the general the message is getting through because, the, for example, the police are checking on people to see if they're actually where they are, they say they are, and they found up to about a third of people not being at home when they're supposed to be at home. Who were are, who are being tested for who, the virus. Who were being tested and therefore were automatically quarantined. What's been interesting is the reaction from the public. So a couple of the news outlets have got little sections where you can input your own views on what should be done. And by far and away, the majority of the population feel that the punishments, if you like, being meted out by the police are far too nice. And they really want this thing clamped down and they're very happy to participate in it, but they want everybody else to pull their weight in the process. So I think the message is getting through, not to everybody, that really can't I, be done. I think one of the things, there's been a, quite a lot of stuff in the media about the fact that this has divided Melbourne. The uh, upsurge in cases is not where we live. We, we live in the east of Melbourne and it's the north and the west. And if you just look at the map of Melbourne where the cases are, it's in that band across north and east, um, north and west, and then some outer southeast. There's a sort of, you know, pockets, if you like. And so it is geographically um, quite a divided city sense. And, of course, one of the real problems, as I said before, we've got a, a lovely home and we've got a little garden and we've got a gym and we've got a balcony, and, you know, all the stuff that makes life pleasant to be in, whereas a lot of the problems have been in public housing. Um, and some of our public housing is pretty grim. No balconies, high rise, um, and, you know, shared lifts and stairwells and, and all that stuff. Um, so, uh, and there, of course, you know, there, all the information is available in a number of languages online. However, you have to, A, have the capacity and B, the, the habit of looking online in order to find it. So there has been some real lesson to learn about um, not how to deal with people like us because we read the media, we think about it, etc. It's how to deal with um, people who are in uh, communities who do not access mainstream media and for whom English is not a common language um, and who don't just check stuff online. So I think there's been... I, I think there's a level of frustration growing. I mean, I feel it inside myself. I am now um, annoyed when I see people without a mask, um, and we have. We see them still wandering the streets because technically if you're outside your front door or back door or off your property, you have to wear a mask. And, um, uh, you know, in, in one, I guess, really where we are, there's relatively few cases. There's, I checked it before, it's... Uh, I don't know, 50 cases in the entire municipality. It's it's not a like a huge flood. Um, but nevertheless, it's enough to mean that every single bit counts. So I think it has brought up uh, whether or not um, aged care is, of course, the other absolute... Uh, the Aged Care Commission 
put in a report to the federal government because they came under federal jurisdiction um, in sometime in 2018 with 14 strong recommendations to care. Um, they haven't even had that particular committee or panel or whatever it's called, hasn't even had a response yet. This is nearly, this is two years later. Now, some of those 14 recommendations would have meant that many of these dear oldies would still be alive if they had been in. Um, I mean, I, I know it, it sounds awful, but I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that mother died a few years ago. She was in a pretty nice aged care facility, but she, it would have been devastating to have to go through what was happening in every aged care facility, in, certainly in Victoria. So I think there's lots of... What do you hope is going to stick? Of all the changes you've seen, mm, that's a really good question. The I'm hoping that the fact that people have shown when they pull together, they can have a successful outcome. That that will remain. I think. I think one of the, one of the things that we really need to avoid is going back to trying doing doing things the way we used to, because it's convenient, it's comfortable, it's politically expedient. I think there's a great opportunity in in disasters to rebuild things in better ways. My only concern is that we won't, is that our politics will lead us down the path of, Building the economy. Of, of same old, same old. And, you know, the one of my disappointments has been, for example, Carmel just mentioned the, the problems with public housing. The government announced that they were going to assist people to keep all the tradesmen working, the tradies, as we refer, the, refer to them as, um, they were going to help people that were doing renovations or extensions on their properties. Now, the people doing all the renovations and the extensions, they're doing them because they could have afforded them in the first place. Yes, I mean, they're, and, they're people who've and, got a home. They're not homeless. Yeah. They've got a home. They have some spare cash, and yeah. they're getting a handout on what, as well. And, and that seems to us to be justifiably unfair, and that's what I mean about doing things the old way. If, if you're objective, was to keep the tradesmen working and keep that part of the economy ticking over. That's a great objective, but it could have gone into the public housing where it's actually desperately needed and where it's clearly been demonstrated there are problems. I, I think also another positive, though, just to change the subject a bit, is that there have been a number of surveys that have shown that Australians are actually exiting more under lockdown. Uh, obviously, there's going to be some who, who haven't, but you know, this, this stringent go out and do your hour exercise every day, has meant that there are people who normally would not go for a walk and they've probably got time. Now, they might have been now unemployed and you know, financial stress, but nevertheless, there's been hopefully an increase in the concern about your own personal health and fitness that has come during the last few months. Now, I'm hoping that that's that um, now until we get some evidence about whether uh, people are, are actually fitter and healthier, um, uh, there's no evidence at the moment, but, but at least there's some indication that people are willing to put a bit of effort into fitness and health. Um, and the fact that, that um, there's more home cooking going now, mm. it could be horrible home cooking, but <laughs> it might be fruit and veg. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I have some questions to end with and not very much time to get through them, so we'll have to be quick. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? I think being a distinguished visiting professor um, is a very nice achievement. I, I've enjoyed it. It's been, I spent 15 years with her early in my life 
and coming back and being able to sort of take the accumulated experience and growth perhaps back into the community has been awesome. Uh, as we mentioned before, we both have been directors and deans and just having that great opportunity to work around the world in different cultures, get a much better understanding for me has been one of the great successes of my life and really opened one's eyes to the way in which the world operates in a much in a way I would never achieved if I hadn't left my own country, which sounds a bit strange, but that's the way it works sometimes. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. <laughs> so I want to know what each other's superpower no, is. His superpower is an, an amazing range of skill across domains that I just don't know anything about. He can fix things. He can problem solve. He has fabulous visual um, skills. He's a great photographer. Um, uh, yeah, and, and when, when he wants, he, some people might put stubborn. He calls it. <laughs> so things get solved. Yeah. Um, well, it's only stubborn if you keep doing the same thing. Yeah. Okay. What do you think about me, darling? Oh, there are. <laughs> okay. I, I think no. I think Carmel is truly one of the most focused, organised people that you could ever possibly meet. And the challenges faced with producing this, what is going to be, I think, a very significant book on social justice and teaching and teacher education in in Africa, so, a topic that's very, very important everywhere, I think. But I don't think I think there's very few people in the world who actually completed the project given the the range of challenges that's faced and also tell the story quite so well. So that stupendous level of organisation, focus, discipline and multiple lists, like you wouldn't believe the sheer number of lists, but it means that things get done and they get done well, very well, in fact. Do you consider yourselves to be activists? Absolutely. Um, no, not any longer. I, I used to be. I was a very active anti-apartheid person in South Africa with both the environmental things. Um, at this stage of my life, though, I'm saying if I can do something about it, I will. Now, if that makes me an activist, fine. But it's not I am an activist. So that, for example, I work um, with Dying with Dignity Victoria was part of the um, um, scheme to get voluntary assisted dying legislation into Victoria um, and we now assist people with witness process and I used to be, when I could go into aged care homes and talk to oldies about their end of life choices. So if that's activism. Yes it is, it's activism. Yeah, I suppose it is, it's because it's something I can do something but to, to sit and say the government should is no longer where I am. So it, I need to be um, I will put energy and, and activity and persistence into things that I can make a difference to. Uh, I'm no longer, I would no longer call myself um, a left-wing feminist. I used to have a pair of trousers which had a large feminist symbol on the left buttock. It was because I was a left-wing feminist. <laughs> now, A, I would no longer, and B, I wear those sort of clothes now. Um, but y y do you see what I'm trying to say? I, I, I don't align particular uh, group but I think even you know I'm now 70 it's you know I'm supposed to be a little old lady missing but I still think there's lots to do but yeah. it has to be focused. I still contribute a bit to uh, a local energy group in trying to raise the profile of and opportunities that 
offered to the economy for going down the renewable energy pathway within Australia. It's just not just the environment that people argue from. I try to argue it always from an economic opportunity for both the, the, uh, the state, the people, and where we're going. And I think that contributing to that, I think that makes me a little bit of an activist, but I can't say it's a, certainly don't go marching up and down streets, not during a lockdown, that's for sure. Lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Enjoy life. Life is a gift. Each day should be meaningful. Each day should have its list and you should do something on your list every day. Um, it's just, just um, I guess, about being positive and uh, um, being thankful for if your listeners are in New Zealand or in Australia, then we have so much privilege that um, we should just be enormously thankful. I think my only advice is that, you know, make the most of it. Be busy. The, the worst thing I think one can be is bored. And if you're bored, it's because you just haven't looked around far enough to see what else you could be doing. There's so many opportunities within our, both our countries to, to not be bored, to keep active, to keep mentally active, keep physically active. Um, there's no reason. I think one of the reasons that, that people say the semi-retirement can be boring is because you just repeat the same things over and over. But you don't need to do that. You know, we've got lots and lots of things that we're planning. We're doing things that we've never done before because we have time to do. I think the lockdown is a great opportunity to have a go at some of those things that maybe you claim you didn't have the time to do before. And it's a, it's, it's a good time to sort of try them out. And I think it's also a really good time to, to overcome some of those misconceptions you might have by reading and comparing views and things like that. So we keep very, very busy. Thank you very much for that. In the morning. Thank you for joining us. Mawira. Um, I, I'm absolutely in agreement with both of you. There's, um, I think uh, being bored is, is a kind of a bit lazy, really. Uh, there's, there's no barriers for us. Every opportunity is there for all of us, and that's a good reminder. Thank you. been listening to blowing bubbles positive conversations with people in their bubbles their safe spaces around the world brought to you by the sustainable lens team which is brought to you by otago polytechnic we broadcast on otago access radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz you can find us on facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts been listening to the new west symphony and chorus playing come to the mountain bob dylan's blowing in the wind and this is the beatles blackbird played here by lisa gross contribution from Tahu Mackenzie. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani, and we were joined by Carmel McNaught and David Kennedy in Melbourne. We hope you enjoyed the show.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.